Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Welcome to the next big trade and thanks for joining us. Um, this week I'm talking to Osman Osan. Uh, Osman uh, founded Deuterium Capital Management in 2018 and manages the Deuterium Absolute Return Fund in addition to his role on the GDA team. Um, Osman manage, also manages private investment portfolios and a private equity pool for clients of the firm. He studied law at the University of Bristol before moving to graduate study at the Stern School of Business. Um, Oz has led an extensively international career working in investment banking at Barclays and UBS and trading interest rate and currency derivatives and debt insurance. You know, your career sounds a lot like mine in some respects. How did that happen? I think we've met before, and thanks we, so much for having me on your um, on your. We, we may have met before, <clears throat> and it's nice to talk to a fellow North Londoner. So let, we should admit it, that you are a bit North London, aren't you, Oz? I think, I think yeah, there's no hiding that, and that there's no attempt to hide it either. <laughs> that's, that's what I like to hear, isn't it? So, and uh, we have, yeah, to be for full disclosure, Oz and I have worked together in London uh, at UBS, although he was in London and I was in New York, and in Moscow, uh, where we have stories. What can I say? Which we sometimes try to forget about. We do, we do. <laughs> uh, so, I'm told these days, Oz, that the um, the the greeting in North London nowadays is Wagwan. Say, what, have you, have you, what did you used to say growing up? Is it what you... All right, mate. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of put me on the spot there now. You, you, it's you, like my age is going to start telling. I've got a mate over at the uh, debt management office in the UK. A guy who used to be a interest rate strategist for Morgan Stanley. Okay. Um, and every time he, I call him up, he says, what you... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't said that in a long time. Exactly. I forgot that existed. There you, there you That's go. a good one. That's a good greeting. So tell us a little bit about you um, and about Deuterium. Go on. We, we know you're a North Londoner, but what, tell me about Deuterium. Sure. Um, well, as you've mentioned, you know, my background was mostly in trading interest rate and currency derivatives um, over the course of my career. The few other bits and pieces here and there. but. Um, you know, essentially, the idea for Deuterium originally was to look at ways in which that you can bring that experience as an external CIO to large family offices. Um, well, what I found, though, very quickly is that there was a lot of interest for that, but the amount of discretionary money that kept flowing in just got to the point where it made the most sense to start a fund. And so from there, over, yeah. overnight, we, we were in the fund management business, and that was a much more natural way to deploy 
assets that we were given to manage, um, advisory that we were asked to do. And so we've grown pretty dramatically in that time. I think we were around the 1.2 billion mark in terms of assets under management. We manage four funds with two broad strategies. So we've got the, you mentioned the GDA, the Global Dynamic Allocation Fund. Um, that's headed up by my business partner, John Ricciardi, and I run the absolute return strategy. And there's a little bit of nuance between how those two things work, but essentially they are macro in nature, right? So for instance, we have a data science team who crunch through hundreds of thousands of data series. We build models from there. We build forecasts on like what's GDP going to do? What's industrial production going to do? That's a huge input to our overall process of trying to understand the broader world around us. The dynamic allocation fund essentially follows a model portfolio generated from there with a with a strong man uh, with a strong sort of manager overlay. The you know kind of takes that strategy from being you know a quartile in the top quartile fund to being a top decile fund in the absolute return fund. Um, while we do do a lot of that work, we essentially are four PMs in there with four pretty much orthogonal approaches to how we kind of build out our trading strategy. But it's much more like what you and I would be akin to as, as a prop portfolio than it is a, hey, here's everything that the MSCI world says I should own. What bits do I trim? What bits do I not take on board? How do I meet my ESG responsibilities and all of that? Like in the absolute return fund, we, don't, we care about that in a very different way. Um, we have much more highly concentrated positions. And essentially, um, the, thrux, the, the, the real kind of crux of it is like, we're looking at things we can monetize on a three-month to 18-month basis. So we're not like so much involved in the day-to-day funds did this and the S&P did that, you know, as a sort of trading style. I think that especially, you know, given how much high-frequency traders there are out there and whatever, like I don't see a huge amount of ways of really adding a lot of value beyond sort of what one of our managers does, which is, to sort of take a very quantitative approach to trading some of that. So the bulk of the money is kind of employed on that time horizon. We try to look at ways of like, like say, you know, AI is a very topical thing at the moment, right? <clears throat> We've been in the AI trade for quite some time, but obviously you're not putting on bets that you think like, you know, that our grandchildren would favor from. So, you know, the, the plays were very clear, you know, of the, as someone pointed out to me in the office the other day, of the six stocks that have performed the most strongly in the last six months, we've owned four of them, right? So, and we've had them for quite a while. You go back on our 13 Fs, we've had them for quite a while. And they kind of checked a lot of boxes because you got to play AI, you got to play the crypto from the picks and shovels perspective, the growth picture, innovation, all of those things we try and get exposure to in the absolute return fund. It's all worked very nicely. Um, and it's kind of, you know, at the point where we, we're actually harvesting out those trades. But that's kind of the broad approach. So, you know, good macro solid understanding from the bottom up. And then we look at ways in which to really kind of put interesting trades on around things that we think we should get exposure to. Okay. So that, I think, naturally segs into the whole point of this podcast, which is, right. you know, the next big trade. And my understanding is your next big trade is there is no next big trade. So talk to me yeah. about that. Yeah, it's kind of like that. I mean, as I touched on, right, like 
um, the AI theme, I think, you know, is definitely something that um, everyone needs to think about in terms of like how it sits on their portfolio. We've had such an amazing run. If anything, we've been sort of exiting a lot of those positions that we've had or scaling back on them. Like Briefly, how, how, did you, how do you express the AI trade? What was, what was the expression of that view? The simplest one was, you know, you own NVIDIA. Right. You own the, the market leaders. You, uh, you own who are the leaders in cloud or who are underpriced. You know, Oracle's a good stock that we've had um, decent exposure to. Microsoft is another bit of Apple, not huge. Um, but like NVIDIA was kind of like the, the real key thing. Um, other stocks that we've that we've held that we we strongly believe in that um, have other potential but doesn't necessarily play the AI theme as stuff like ISRG and so on, right? Um, a lot has been said. I think like you know when you start getting Nvidia trading at hundreds of times earnings, you might want to take a little bit off. We've definitely been doing that. Um, I think that we kind of at certain levels where. Um, we're pricing so much, we're grabbing so much from the forward curve in terms of what's projected for earnings that I feel less comfortable holding it as a, as a big dominant position on the portfolio than I did six months ago. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, so this I'm, I'm intrigued by this notion that the next big trade is that there is no big trade. Um, mm -hmm. For one, it reminds me of that scene in The Matrix where that bull kid wearing the toga says something to Neo where he says, do not try and bend the spoon. Um, it is impossible. Instead, only try and realize the truth. There is no spoon. Well, okay. you know, why is there no spoon? I don't, I don't you know, what? give me some macro that explains why you – too much in the price of AI, fine. But yeah. why Why is there in nothing the out there you, you want to well, bet your bulls on right now? I think you want to take a balanced approach right now. Like, you know, when we look at, um, say, our macro models, everything looks fine. You know, it's been a miracle to have this much in rate hikes at such high speed. Um, very reminiscent of like sort of 2005, 2006 in some regards in terms of how great the economy was doing and how robust it was. Now, you're near the peak in rates. Um, the economy seems to be in good shape, and, and, and most of what we're flagging is like, hey, um, stay long stocks. You know, it, you know, we've got some signals where you, you start shifting out of some of the, the positions like long Japanese stocks into being more overweight US and so on. That's all fine. But... I think we've had we have more tail risk today, in a sense similar to 2000 sort of six type of era when the Fed was done hiking and so on. We have lots of tail risk. You know, a lot is said about commercial real estate. That's a banking sector problem at the end of the day, particularly in the U.S. where everything is non-recourse. 
But um, what about um, the huge amount of leverage that's been building up on the corporate level? Um, there are very mixed data points around like how imminent is the debt rollover that's been built up both by private equity funds as well as like companies who have been avidly borrowing at zero or close to zero rates to buy back their own stock. Like what happens when you've got to roll that debt? Because even though I think in a, in a sense, we're looking at inflation in the rearview mirror now, it's not where it needs to be, which means that rates will stay up here for probably longer than the market keeps insisting on trying to reprice. And arguably nothing's really broken yet and it should be breaking. So I think that's why you want to be cautious. I think that's why um, even though you're going to be rewarded for holding risk assets over the next six to nine months. You've got to be very, very careful. And I think you've got to be, um, you probably want to, you probably want to really be careful about how nimble you can be and how quickly you can exit. Um, so in that sense, like it's more of the same rather than, Hey, this is what you should be doing next. But the trade that I do really like, and I think that, you know, because we've got this, We've got the bond market looking at totally different things from what the equity market is looking at. For the equity market, everything is rosy and fine. Let's just keep pressing ahead. Let's broaden the rally. Um, rates are much more about, no, 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 it's going to be very bad. There's a recession coming, which we don't see in our models. That's, that's quite interesting. I mean, yeah. how is it? Uh, I shouldn't interrupt you. You're halfway through making No, this that's point. okay. But I'm intrigued that your data filtering and mining yeah. uh, arm doesn't see a recession. Can you reconcile that with your your own economic views? What, why is that happening? What's that, going that, on? That's that's why the that's why like even though we've got a very systematic approach, the manager overlay piece is important um, because. Any type of modeling, by definition, is simplifying the world around us, no matter how sophisticated it may be, how extensive it may be. It's not going to see certain things. So, you know, we as a team across the four funds, like, spend, I don't know, four or five hours on, on a Tuesday going through all of these things, but also looking far and wide at what's being published out there to try and understand the broader risk framework in which we need to operate. And it's when you look at that aspect of it that we can't model. Like I can't model, um, you know, what's going to happen to a lot of these companies that sit in PE funds who have huge amounts of debt. And when they roll them from 65 basis points to 525, how stuff is not going to break. Like, I can't model that. I don't have sufficient information or detailed information to really do a reliable job of saying, yeah, this is what's going to happen. Um, Harry, I'm going to call you around the 17th of September when things blow up. Like you can't predict it quite that way. Yeah. So you you have to build other things into your portfolio um, that may create a little bit of drag from what you ultimately could make. But you've got to be very protective of your portfolio. You've got to look at that side of it, or you've got to have more convexity than you might be prone to if you just simply. Yeah, you would think this environment cotton. would reward you for having a little bit of cheapish convexity if you can find it somewhere on your book. Correct. Um, Correct. So uh, you you made 
I think two quite striking points to me because they're they're foremost in my mind. Mm-hmm. One of which was um, the Fed is telling us that they're going to keep on going unless we uh, mend our ways, but mm-hmm. nobody can mend their ways for various reasons. And the other is the impact of that is going to trickle in over time. It's not something that happens overnight because nobody refinances overnight. But every right. month, corporates are refining their debt burden from 3% to 5% effective or 7% effective. Every month, um, in October, for example, uh, US student loans restart um, and people will start paying the, cert- the debt service on their student loans when it was suspended for COVID. There's mm-hmm. a ratcheting tighter, a kind of backdated ratcheting tighter of Fed policy. Yes. Yes. Still doesn't really explain to me why we haven't seen more of an effect from what is quite an unprecedented tightening in monetary policy. And any thoughts on why we haven't seen that effect? I, I, I buy less into like, you know, sure, there was a lot of fiscal stimulus. Um, that's probably helped households. Um, there's been some shifts in the way people work. You know, there are there are these missing hours of labor that we have in the US labor market, right? Like people just choosing to work less. Like no one has a real explanation of like, why have people chosen to do that? Um, there's lots of ways of explaining it. Um, there's also, you know, if you look at the percentage of hours that are being worked less, you know, graduates are a great example where you, you know, sits in complete opposition to the idea that that guy who's decided that he doesn't want to work 60 hours a week and wants to work 30 and go hiking on Thursdays or whatever he's doing, right? Um, at the same time, has a student low repayment issue. Um, these things don't square up very well. And, I, and, and unfortunately, we will understand the economy better later. So in that sense, if you recall when, um, when the Fed was hiking back in 2005, 2006, you know, I don't want I don't want to necessarily, you know, point the finger at the chairman of the Fed in any particularly bad oh, way. Oh, I, I do. I, I met him <laughs> when they were doing that. Uh, before he was the chair, I uh, had a meeting when I was at uh, Aberdeen um, mm-hmm. with uh, Mr. Bernanke. And mm-hmm. in that meeting at some point, I said, uh, you know, do you not worry about the real estate market? And he went, no. <laughs> Why would I? Well, What's not- wrong with the real estate market? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, for me, what I never forget is his testimony when he said, like, the whole thing is a very well self-contained system now. Yeah. Because of credit derivatives. And that's a great example of where someone looks at it from a purely financial theory perspective, but is not looking at some of the empirical information about, like, well, it's all underwritten by one individual or one entity or whatever. Or, you know, back then, if you asked, like, yeah, those people who sit upstairs from us on the credit trading floor who are doing correlation trading, yeah, what is that? Yes. And it's like, no, 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 you're a bit too thick to understand how clever they are. So just carry on with what you're doing. Like, it was yeah. it was kind of like, that was the culture. So you'd ask all these questions or you'd ask, you'd try and understand, like, you'd read something in the Financial Times or whatever, and you'd be like, oh, yeah, this deal's just gone through and it's been upgraded to AAA because somebody put a wrapper on it and they're charging one and a half basis points per annum running for providing that protection. Yes. And, and they have, they have £4.50 of capital. They have yeah, £4.50 like, of capital, but they're charging one and a half. 
Are but, you but, sure you can really ensure that? Yeah, just intuitively, the math just doesn't make any sense. But like, you've got a day job to do, and you don't always necessarily get have the time to go and, you know, brush up on all these things and understand, you know, the maths behind copulas and all the rest of it to to contest some of this wisdom that's been contained. So, you know, if you think about it, when when the Fed started cutting, the real fallout came months later. Right, where like clearly nobody could take the pain anymore. And then suddenly, you know, you had like the June 2007 subprime print, default print or whatever, just spiking. And then suddenly, was like, is this important? Um, and you find out a few weeks later that it's important to somebody. And things like three month LIBOR over OIS is not six basis points eternally, it can go higher. And then you discover a month later, it's not just a month end issue, it's it's a year end issue. And then you suddenly realize, no, there's something, you know, and it just keeps unraveling. And that's the thing that I think you've got to keep front and center because it's, you know, history, what's, what's that expression? History doesn't repeat, repeat itself or somehow it rhymes. Yeah. There's a little bit of that. Um, what that rhyme looks like, we can speculate, but... I do feel very, very like on the one hand, like you got to be long, but I'm very nervous about being long. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So I frame this when I talk about this concept of you, you, yeah. you need to own assets. Um, I think about it in terms of transmitting consumption into the future. Right. Um, and the asset markets are our only way of doing that. The only communication between uh, the present and future consumption. Uh, we rely on other people holding up, you know, maintaining the value of our claims on them, uh, honouring those claims. If it's yeah. U.S. Treasury or or some or Google or whatever, we're relying on those claims being honoured. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I suspect that quite a few claims have been issued in the previous 10 years or 12 years since the last big recession right. um, that can't be honoured. And so if you manage to get past what's coming in the next three to five years, you'll have done really well without you know, getting buried somewhere. Um, and the and question that, is managing to do that. Well, it's, it's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point. I would be interested to know, like, where do you... Who do you think are the um, the guilty parties in issuing? Like, are they in any particular sector? Any well, particular we know strategy? already. We already know right. that there's a problem in CRA and commercial real estate. I don't think it's a universe. You, know, you, you you'd lump a lot of stuff into that basket, but mm -hmm. there's going to be CMBS issued. Like, look, one of the things I know is that real estate guys are smart. They're smart. Not all as smart as Sam Zell, but they're smart. So when they have a bunch of equity in a deal, they like to take it. They don't like to leave it in the deal to collateralize somebody else's fixed income. They like to take it out and leave you with non, no recourse. Right. And so on the course of that rally, where mm -hmm. we were marking up uh, the value of real estate assets, office, retail, residential, mm -hmm. um, smart real estate uh, punters extracted as much equity as they could. And right. the people who who gave them that exit are our pension funds, 
who bought mm-hmm. CMBS. Some insurance companies that have to were looking for assets in a yield-starved environment, mm-hmm. um, and endowments. Um, these guys gave them the exit. So, how much of that real estate is an impaired asset? It's a good question. Not all of it, for sure, but a lot of it is priced at the wrong price. You know, you know that, what yeah, Harley Basma says: no, no bad assets, just bad prices. We got a lot of bad prices out there. Yeah, we do. We do. I mean, th- that's. That's why four regional banks blew up, right? Like <clears throat> the the timing could not have been worse in terms of like the excess liquidity they suddenly had, the prices available for buying bonds, and how much of it they did, and then suddenly, you know, accrual accounting becomes the friend that killed you. You know, you... I'm a much more cynical man about this stuff. You, I noticed, for example, SVBs. Um, principles yeah from lehman's and don't tell me that lehman's bankers don't know that when you go long a lot of fixed income that you've got some duration risk on your book they knew it perfectly well of the course. um what they did decided what they decided at the time was that mm-hmm. oh, i don't think rates are going above three percent let's double it play double or quits here and pay ourselves a 10 million bonus at the end after all what could possibly go wrong and <laughs> and it's not our money anyway right i mean you know it was the most yeah, it was, it was uh, to, a, to me, it was an asinine uh, trade. And yeah. yes, they, some of it was liquidity. And yes, they had a hold to maturity book. But they, you know, those deposits, they de- a block of their depositors were some of the sharpest people in the world. They smelt what was going on and they legged it. Nothing surprising at all. <laughs> Nothing here that would surprise any North London white boy. Um, and what we've now is transmuted that problem right. from a deposit problem mm-hmm. and keeping funds, the Fed has transmuted it into a profitability problem. So we have all right. these regional banking franchises that can't make any money because they've lost it all. They've lost money for God knows how long, and now they've got depots repricing from zero to five, mm-hmm. and their franchises don't make money. So you know, right. there's, a, there's a lot of little banks in the US compared to the rest of the world. It's going to ration. What, what do you call it when, when a sector... Rationalization, I don't know. Yeah, consolidation. Consolidation, that's the phrase yeah. people use. We're yeah. going to have a consolidation in banks and probably a good thing. But it's probably but, the same problem in Europe, right? Or Japan and lots of these places. I, you know, I'm not an expert on the banking sector, but, um, you know, there are a lot of, lot of things that have survived, whether it's because of political motivations or regional motivations or whatever they may be. Um, and you suddenly realize like banking is a really bad left skew business and we should get out of it. It's a, it's a feature, <laughs> not a bug, right? It's a, sometimes that's great and sometimes it's not a good time yeah. to be involved in it. it yeah, just, exactly you, right. You own the assets that you funded and they're not mm-hmm. always great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we talk about like this commercial real estate problem, it's effectively a banking problem. Right, like yes, sure. Pension funds, you know, may get caught offside by owning these bonds and so on. Um, but you know, there's just so many, there's so many things on a smaller scale where someone just simply goes, I have a non-recourse loan. It's now the the problem of, you know, X Y Z bank for the county or whatever. Thank you very much. And then suddenly, like you have this huge deterioration in the overall 
balance sheet picture and liquidity picture of all these banks in an environment where liquidity is by design getting removed. That could be a double whammy for stocks, both from a liquidity standpoint. You know, a lot of people have been modeling sort of, you know, where the treasury's liquidity stands and how that stimulates the stock market in the short run to um, just the fact that, you know, certain sectors are just going to fall out of bed and your AI portfolio won't be big enough to compensate you for owning financials, even if you're underweight. Yeah. So just to summarize for people listening in, yeah. you had these big themes that you liked and they they were good to you. You had the AI trade and mm-hmm. you rode that. You like, uh, we had a chat before and you told me you like long-term energy resources yeah. Uh, uh, agricultural plays, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the price is not right at the moment. And that's why you don't want to play. I th- yeah, I think, so So we have, energy's a good one. So we have some contingent plays there in long dated contracts. Um, we like those trades. They're a bit expensive to hold. There were certain features of the term structure that helped compensate for the high vol and the burn that you get on that and so on. Um, you want to add to them. But these are, I think what I was pointing out to you in the past was like, there's, there's lots of technical and structural issues going on there that no one is really focusing on as much as they should. Most people are focusing on the idea there's going to be a recession and therefore do not own oil or short it, for example. And too much has been made of maybe the supply constraints that come out of the war in the you know, in the caucus and so forth, right? So what you need is as you start pricing, say, a different kind of economy or recession didn't materialize, and so the, the, the demand side is then supported by people saying like, yeah, oil's too cheap now. It will actually upset, accelerate to the upside in a very, very dramatic way because there's really nowhere else for more oil to come from, you know, if you've got OPEC cutting production to a point where you, you you would have expected oil to be 10 points higher, but the momentum in the other direction and the, and the guys who own the technical longs, say, if we were to be included alongside them, are too small in number because the consensus is to sell this stuff. Um, it just keeps cheapening up. At some point, there's going to be a great trade. It's just like in 2020 when oil was negative. Um, I think I bought some at a negative price and I literally held it for less than an hour because I just thought there's something here I don't understand. And I was wrong about that. And I'm not saying oil's going negative or it's going back down to $35 a barrel or anything like that. But I think like you will have opportunities to get on these trades um, over the coming couple of months at even better levels probably. So that speaks to, to my mind, when you say something like that, that's saying that, that we should assume that the second or third m- moment of the vol surface is, is worth owning because mm-hmm. the vol of vol is very high. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just you need to own a bit more cash than you would do in a more stable environment right. just to take exactly advantage right. of those. And, yes. you know, uh, that's I a, occasionally... That's a very nice way of putting it. I occasionally pumped around in all futures there, but for the grace of God, I could have been in the same shoes as some Duluth dentist who had a contract or two at 28 bucks that dropped to minus 37 bucks because of some Essex white boys 
um, who have a, a swinging at the at the bull. Um, it could have happened to any of us. We could have all been carried yeah. out in the oil trade. Um, and it just reminds me a lot, like the one thing, the big advantage <clears throat> of us being in Russia, and God knows there were a lot of disadvantages to it. Right? Yeah. I, I, you know, yeah. I lost, no one will believe this now, but my weight went down to 160 pounds at one point. Uh, shortage yeah, of food. I think, I think that um, on average, I used to eat like once every three days or something. There was just nothing to eat. Remember? How bad yeah, I mean, you know, what? I had a surprisingly large amount of caviar in my diet in those days, caviar and vodka, um, but it still didn't keep the weight up. You find it's quite hard to maintain your weight with just caviar. It's um, true. But, uh, yeah, the, the discontinuities, the, there's nothing that Russia taught me better than the extent to which markets can be incredibly discontinuous and that yeah. relying on liquidity is a fool's, uh, you know, people don't understand how much the future could be different to the past. Yeah. Um, Russians do, <laughs> but, right. but most, most people in New York or LA don't understand that. Yeah, I think even, even during the, the throes of like late 2008, it's still was not quite as dramatic as those handful of days in August 98, where we just saw a complete meltdown, right? Like, I mean, I've never seen anything like that, even in the financial crisis. If you, where positions can't be held, it doesn't matter what they're worth. I yeah. remember buying Macedonian sea bonds from one of our colleagues who was shelling them out at some price that I thought was infeasibly low. Like, I don't think 37 and a half rings a bell. It's a ridiculous how you can remember the price you bought a Eurobond at 20 years ago, 15 years ago. But I can remember 37 and a half rings a bell. And I bought a quarter of a million for my own account. Um, those bonds were redeemed I mean, at par. Yeah, I, used to, like, I remember like in June of 98, you were buying prints off customers for like an 87 handle. Yeah. Yeah. And two months later, you were buying them with an eight handle. That's right. That's right. I, and I, <laughs> and I bought, I bought some part. of those for my own account as well. You know, when you're in Excel, when you're very naive, like I was then, right? Maybe not so naive, but naive in market terms anyway. Um, you go like, that's not possible. The IRR would be 4,000% or whatever it comes. Yeah, in. that's right. You know, it, it, couldn't, it, was, it was in a sense inconceivable. And yeah, everyone got all their money back. But it takes it takes a different kind of courage, or maybe you know, sanity levels to have bought you know paper that was going to. I think there was like some Brady bonds that were going to mature in March of the following year that you could you could get um, thousands of percent. Not, not Brady's; those would have been Minfin's, Russian Min Ministry of Finance, Minfin Freeze. Yeah, Minfin Freeze would have would have redeemed at that, and Sometime they around. were trading at twenty cents or something. Um, and it's interesting because you know you, you had to know the institutional detail. Now, in this particular case, all the Russian banks that we had as counterparties went bust. They were all bust. Yes. Um, um, but they didn't want to go bust, which was a thing I never understood. They were technically insolvent, but they preferred not to, and therefore they didn't. Um, and a striking <laughs> thing to witness. Uh, yeah. Because they just, it was all done on the phone. You call up and I can't pay you. What do you mean you can't pay us? Do you, do you remember that Jeff character? We had a lovely geezer, American geezer called Jeff. Very serious man. Um, I don't know what he was doing working with us. Okay. Um, 
but he went off to the Volgograd Oblast, uh, where we had we had agro bonds. Renaissance yeah. owned agro bonds, yeah. and he was negotiating with the Volgograd governor. I remember saying, that. "We'd like you to repay us on these thirteen million dollars of of, um, of agro bonds." And they said, "We don't have any money for you, but we do have two thousand uh, dentist chairs." Bird cages cages and a fair number of stainless steel dildos, quite a few stainless steel dildos. You remember? Do you remember that? I do. I do. (laughs) This is the future. Third item, but yes, I thought thought it was important. Yeah, it turns out they used to have a shell manufacturing plant that they'd repurposed because a senior manager had gone to uh, the Reaper Barn in Hamburg and had noticed that people could use that kind of shaped object. I see. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it was a fascinating time because, um, you know, truth being stranger than fiction, I think, you know, it really kind of takes that adage to the extreme, right? Yes. Um, but yeah, people, if you, he, they, if you can't fund it, you hit a bit and it doesn't matter whether that price is too low. There was no one buying it. In fact, um, we know that, uh, Lehman Brothers, if, if no other bank, probably others too, were liquidating Russian counterparties. And, you know, part of that trade would have involved them looking at the market saying, w- w- what is this really worth? Hitting whatever bid they saw from idiots of the likes of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last quarter, when the price was down at eight cents in the dollar, they might have put on the book themselves. Right. And, right. That, you know, there's nothing... <clears throat> There's something immoral about that transaction, but nothing illegitimate, nothing to prevent it. When you're doing, a, when you're liquidating a repo, when you're in financial distress, you're in the hands of your lenders. Ultimately, what it took, and and this is kind of speaks to a little bit on the culture of leverage that we're kind of in the midst of, that kind of creates a lot of the tail risks we have today, is that ultimately what it took was someone to to essentially wipe the debt away that people had on their portfolios and literally just sit on their assets for five years. And they made a lot of money. Yeah. Because yeah. to your point, everything got redeemed. And so, you know, in structuring a portfolio, structuring your trades and whatever, like that is the problem that worries me is that is that the real headwind now is the fact that so much has been done in the last 15 years to just keep adding to the debt pile, right? Like, this big debate we had when QE first started. Um, oh, yeah, inflationary and whatever. What people forgot is that it actually didn't permeate its way into the economy in quite the same way as sending people a bunch of checks from the federal government during COVID, right? Yeah. What it really did <clears throat> was create a better carry picture for bank balance sheets. It gave a bit of performance to the bond holdings that they were forced to hold because of risk-weighted assets and so forth that they needed to put in their portfolios. And then it only really translated into more money if you're a very large PE fund with great credit who's going to post collateral or, or has collateral that it's buying or whatever. Like, basically, it was not, it was not the guy down the street who could borrow better because lending, lending restrictions to him got tighter and tighter because of various regulations. Yeah, It was to the wholesale market where somebody could go out and say, like, okay, all these family-owned businesses, we're just going to buy them. I'm going to buy them because we can borrow for three to five years. 
at 55 basis points or 65 basis, like ridiculous levels. And is that going to happen? You're, you're arguing that will happen again. That's a likely. I'm, I'm just denouement. worried about like what happens on the roll. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, P funds don't just buy this stuff and hold it for eternity. Like they have a seven year life cycle. You can expend it, ex extend it a year or two here and there. But then you, you're looking for someone else to buy it off you because you've done a bit of re-engineering around the business and you've put a bit of leverage to work and you've cut down on inventories in the warehouse and, and you look like you've got more efficient business model. And then you need someone to hit the, you know, who's going to show you a bid and you hit the bid and you move on and you start fund two or fund seven or fund 47, right? If you can't roll debt at those kind of zero levels, what happens to all of those assets? Yeah. And they own a lot now. Is it, you know. So I'd say on the real estate, the answer to your question is, is it going to be an ex some proportion of it is going to be an extend and pretend because there's no way everybody can refi. Right. So the very worst assets, a whole bunch of banks are just going to pretend they're good. And I really, I should get a real estate expert on to explain how this is going to work in practice. And you probably know, you, you've probably got a fair amount of chops in this space already. I know your fund does uh, real uh, real estate investment. Um, but on the private equity, that's a curious one to me because you've got companies which are still private, but they've borrowed. They've borrowed a fixed income, they borrowed, you know. And I think that has to be a transfer from the equity to the debt holder. The, right. the A lot of the equity holders have just been diluted and they've been diluted 70%, 80%, 90% even. So if, if there's enterprise value there, it's okay. And if the enterprise value is not there, uh, tough luck, Lander. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we've, we've <clears throat> done that a couple of transactions um, outside of the fund where, like, say, late 2020, early 21, you'd get these smaller PE firms who'd go and buy Amazon businesses of all things, right? Like people who had, you know, the best skew for white linen towels or bed sheets you name it right like things seriously that, yeah like they would roll these things up and borrow money because no one was ever going to raise rates again and so some of these people are friends of mine like they sold their businesses like this or they sold a piece of their business and said don't spend the money because in 18 you'll buy you'll be buying it back you'll, you'll be buying it back for yeah. a third of the price that's exactly what's happening um I'm sure some of the bigger PE funds have been a lot more diligent about how they hedge their funding risk and whatever. But at the end of the day, like when you have to roll, it doesn't work to roll from 60-odd basis points to 500 basis points. In many cases, the enterprise can't bear the weight. <laughs> it's true. I've heard stories, and this, this is just anecdotes. So, you know, you, yeah. you've got to be careful how much weight you place in an anecdote. It's true. It's not information, right? Yeah. Um, but the I've been told that general partners have been noticing limited partners failing to make their um, their scheduled payments. So, you, you, yeah, you get the, the cash calls. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of the bigger LPs have just not been unable to make it. And that puts the pressure on the general partner. They, they, obviously, they, they are long the enterprise, but they have to then fund themselves. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, making that payment. Um, if this continues, you can see how it results in a car crash down the line. I don't yeah. know to what extent it continues, but you tighten monetary conditions and it's like playing a game of musical cheers with kids. There's a chair missing. Somebody's going to be unable to sit down. And actually, the conditions haven't been tightened that much because we've only lost yep. a few banks and yep. the Fed put them down quite humanely. <clears throat> We're in an industry that's based on a lot of theory. Um, so when you hear expressions like, you know, less liquidity and whatever, you don't know how that really translates. So a typical, another typical example I can give you is like where, say, family offices have done private investments. Right? Like they funded private equity transactions, things like that, or they've bought into a business thinking that three years out, business is going to do a series B or a series A or whatever. And there's a partial exit and there's a validation of this was a great idea to invest into. The problem is liquidity affects things like that, where now people who would do a round A or a round a series A or a series B, much more prudent about what they invest in. They don't have the capital for the similar reasons at the other end because there's been a general dream. They can't employ debt in the same way. So so many strategies we've become accustomed to as being part of the overall financial fabric of how things work, um, they get unraveled from a zero rates end of scenario and they, they cease to be viable strategies. And so in that sense, like, you know, if you have to pick sectors in the in the stock market to be in and out of, just keep running away from anything that relies on leverage, because those strategies where you optimize your, your weighted average cost of capital by taking on more debt, you're going to have to, even at that level, have a shift away from how much, how much debt there's been on the balance sheet that's been viable till now. Valuations will start looking very different. Let me ask you a question. Somebody's asked about REITs uh, in the live chat. Um, Is it too early to put money into REITs? Is there more? Is it like, let's scale this. Would you put money in now or would you wait? I mean, just on our modeling alone, it's just a bad idea. Like we don't see an immediate end to that. There's so many better things. Like I think, um, you know, healthcare and stuff like that, I think I would go into before I would start trying to pick the bottom on REITs and so forth, where you've you fundamentally got lots of credit risk embedded in there. And that's going to take a long time to work. And out. you have no idea how they're going to renegotiate that financing. It, right. to, to the extent they rely on bondholders, they're probably better off than those relying on banks. But the, the, that financing is going to be a transfer from the equity holder to the fixed income holder. And it's not clear that it's in the price here. A hundred percent. Yeah. So there you go, Darren. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So what is the take? It's not just about cheap pricing, right? Like this is the lesson of 2022, of 2020, if if anyone needs the most recent example where um, you wanted to be long Microsoft in March 2020. Yeah. Not Delta. Right. Totally. You own Delta, or at the point where it makes sense to own Delta, you may as well just own the S&P 500. Like when you're when you're looking for the move, you go into your alpha plays first, and then later on in the move, rather than trying to pick alpha somewhere else, 
when the rally's broadening, just own the S&P 500 is the cheapest way to do it. I think if somebody, uh, someone buying REITs at this point in time mm-hmm. believes that the sector is going to get bailed out by the Fed, in the same way as the Fed has effectively bailed out the uh, uh, depositors of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, right? They, they decided it was systemically important and they let them off. Mm-hmm. Um, the REITs have this renegotiation of debt, rollover. Some of them are well capitalized, some of them are less well. Industrial is way better than residential, I don't know, actually, than office, for example. That's a received wisdom. All depends on the price. But either way around, the lesson of Russia in 98, the lesson of the bond market in 94, mm-hmm. um, the lesson of 2008 with you're over your skis on funding and you are entirely dependent on where the people who are funding you let you out, you know, where they will right. let you, you know, roll Correct. over your yeah. debt. And you, you don't know if you've got any value in that trade at all unless mm-hmm. the Fed lets you out, unless they lend you the money you need. And I can see from what happened during COVID, the S&P 500 companies are probably good, you know, they're probably money good simply because I would bet you if the world gets very nasty, the Fed sets up a facility to, to funnel money to them. How the hell smaller companies get hold of that money is beyond me. Well, that's always the way, right? Right. Maybe maybe they help out the biggest, but like, you know, at some point the Fed also has enough. I mean, Lehman's your perfect example, right? They just got to the point where there were no more deals to be had where you could sell an investment bank for a dollar fifty or whatever. To anybody, right? Yeah, they, they destroyed Merrill Lynch, by the way, by forcing Merrill Lynch blew itself up, but selling it to Bank of America harmed Bank of America. Um, Bank of America didn't have the wherewithal to carry all those losses, even with well, the Fed they greasing the way. Right? They yeah. paid real money for a franchise, um, as opposed to say what Barclays did with Lehman, which was to say we will got it for nothing. That has yeah. no balance sheet, needs no balance sheet and um, would have cost us an absolute fortune to build on our own. We are pretty much out of time. Okay. So the, the very first thing we have to do, and these things always go too quick, I would, I would have grilled you on all sorts of things. Okay. Um, but the very first thing, if, if people want to find out what you're thinking at Deuterium, how do they do that? Um, we have an email address, which we're very happy to, for people to It's info at deuterium.us. Um, just drop us a line, just say like, hey, this is my background or whatever, because we have to be careful we're not sending stuff out to like... Yeah, you're you're still too pretty for prison as well. (laughs) Be very happy to put people on our research list if we can. Yeah. Okay, Um, so I'll send you that email. And then secondly, I wanted to invite you to the MI2 Partners Global Macro Conference in Vail. It's going to be beautiful. You'll love it. Maria will love it too. Okay. Do come. Um, when is and it? It's the uh, 26th to the 29th of September, but the details are on the MI2 website. We'll we'll talk about macro. We'll find some good trades. I'll You'll, put it in my diary. Exactly. And we'll have a drink over a roaring log fire or something like that. Something along those lines. Sounds great. Sounds great. Anyway, thanks a lot for having me on. It's been wonderful chatting to you. Um, And it's nice to hear someone who's got a proper accent, not one of these strange, like. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad to hear you guys are hitting the ball out of the park. Um, May it long continue. Thank you. And uh, until the next time, come on again sometime. We'll chat some more.
would love to do that. Thanks a lot. A pleasure, mate. Take care. Have a good one. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.